Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Saju, um, and I am a member of the Transit Church, and I'm uh, filling in for Nick and uh, Jeff today and sharing from the Word of God. Um, we have been going through the book of Mark, and so today we are at the latter verses of chapter 4 of Mark. And so um, I, what I thought we'll do is we'll read that together, and then uh, I'll just share some thoughts on it. So before we read that, and the words will come up on the screen, um, you can just uh, find a Bible if you'd like one. They're underneath the first aisle here on either sides, uh, or you can pull it up on your app or whatever you have. Here's, here's two questions, I think, just to keep in mind as you read this scripture passage, or maybe just any scripture passage. Um, it's good for us to ask, why does this event happen? You know, like, why, what, what's the point of this event? And the second one is, why does the Bible record it for us? Okay, so as we read it, just ask yourself that question. So why does this event even happen? And why is the Bible recording it down so that 2,000 years later, we can read about it? So the story is familiar, but what we do as our tradition here is that we read it together. So as the verses come up on the screen in uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 35, let's all read this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? Amen. Let me just pray as we start. <clears throat> Father, uh, we want to understand why you put these events in Scripture and recorded it for us this day. What does it mean for us? How does it apply? How are you speaking to us? You tell us that your word is living and alive and active, sharp as a sword that pierces through. So we ask that um, you pierce through the deepest part of us right now through your word so that we would understand you, we would see you, we would know ourselves, and we would be able to live in this world with some greater level of wisdom because of the instructions that come from your teaching. Let your Holy Spirit be upon us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So we are still in the early days of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. Um, as far as his disciples are concerned, this is still a get-to-know-you phase of, of following Jesus. You know, they're seeing him teach, they're seeing him do miracles, but they're really just starting to get to know the person of Jesus. It's, it's really been maybe days, if not uh, weeks, if not just days. But here's what I will say. It's through this story, through this event, that the disciples learn a lesson about God and about themselves that's going to change them forever. It's going to give them 
one of the most important tools that they'll need for the rest of their lives, this event, this story, so that they can live life wisely. So let's, uh, let's look at the background before we dig deeper into the application of what's going on here. As, as, as you've seen from the previous weeks of teaching, where we are now is that Jesus has selected his 12 apostles. 12 individuals that he's pulled apart from the rest that are following him. They are called apostles. And within these 12, we know something, right? There's three that are part of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Those are the three that he confides in the most, and we find him in some of the most intimate conversations, and when he goes to unique situations and places like the Transfiguration, it's Peter, James, and John that he takes with them. But along with those three, we also know that he has Peter's brother, Andrew, and then we also know that there's Philip and Bartholomew, and then the tax collector, Matthew, and Thomas. Those are the names that are more common and then the names get a little fuzzier, at least for me, because we have James, another James, right? They call him James the Lesser. And then there's a Simon, Simon the Zealot. Peter was also Simon, but this is Simon the Zealot. And then we have um, Thaddeus, and then we also have Simon, uh, Judas Iscariot. These are the 12. These are the 12 that have been selected. And what's happening is that as Jesus is now moving about his public ministry, great crowds are following him. So I want you to picture the scene here, right? Jesus is teaching, curiosity is rising, miracles are happening, demons that are actively uh, showing themselves are being rebuked, and uh, people are being freed of demonic possession, being healed physically of infirmities and diseases and conditions they'd been suffering for a long time. And now Jesus starts teaching in parables, you know, and, and the mystery of that is something that... So can you imagine the buzz and the conversation? As you yourself would have heard the teaching of the parable of the sower or some of these, you're trying to say, okay, so if this is this and this is this, well, Jesus meant this, and if, if the soil is rocky and then there's thorny and then there's deep, what does he mean by that? And, you know, I mean, he uses these stories and he starts unpacking. Can you imagine the attention and the buzz that's happening in that part of the world at that time? And part of the way that Jesus teach, teaches in this area near Lake Galilee, which tells us in the previous chapter, is because the crowds were so big, he himself would get into a boat, which is an interesting scene. Jesus is sitting on a boat, and the crowds are around him on the seashore. So somehow, you have to picture that it's somehow like a curved seashore type of a environment, where as you're on the shore, one of the best places to speak from is right on the boat. And Jesus is standing on the boat and delivering the talk, right? Delivering these lessons that he is teaching to them. And the people are spending all day listening to his teaching, understanding. And that's the scene. And that's where this verse 35 of chapter 4 starts off for us. Because it tells us on that day, the same day that he was giving all these teachings, when evening came, when evening came. And so it's interesting, in Jewish system of the, of the way they look at the days, evening actually starts at 3 p.m. You know, so it's evening begins at 3 p.m. They look at time in increments of three hours. So there's 6 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock, and then 9 to 12, and 12 to 3, and 3 to 6, and so on. 
But evening would typically start as early as 3 p.m. So when it says evening came, it might have been 3, it might have been 4. We don't know, but partly one thing we can know, know is that it was still daylight. And so what we find here is that that's, that's where the story unfolds. That's where we see this scene happening. And it is by this place called the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. And this is actually a common place that Jesus has been, right? You know, this is where Peter and James and John are familiar with. This is the sea that they fished in. This is something that they know very well. Just a little interesting facts about the Sea of Galilee. It is said to be about um, 15 miles long and about 7 miles wide. So 64 square miles is the Sea of Galilee. I say that to you because as we look at the storm, and this is sort of an influence of Sunday school teaching in my life, I've seen these cartoon drawings of a sea, but it doesn't look that serious, the storm, right? Because I've, you know the, the land looks close by, the water looks like it's barely a pond or something like that. So no biggie, I think, but imagine that, okay? 64 square miles is the exact same size as Washington, D.C., so that's what we're looking at, a, a surface area, the, the, the same length, the same distance, the same size as the entire city of Washington, D.C. That's the Sea of Galilee. And if you're looking in history books, for those of you that are history buffs, you might not find the word Sea of Galilee because it was referred to as Lake Tiberias in most history books. Or even today in, um, in Israel, it's, it's referred to as Lake um, uh, Kenneriset. Um, but that's the Sea of Galilee as well, the same, same place. So, so picture that. And these fishermen are very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. So when Jesus gets into a boat, as evening comes, he gets into a boat with his disciples, right? So if you can imagine, these are the, the 12 disciples and Jesus get into a boat. The boat itself is typically about 22 feet long and 7 foot wide. So it's not a small little kind of a rowboat. But because it says there was a cushion there in the back, right, and Jesus would rest his head on it. Typically a boat that had a, a cushion in the back, the cushion is where the oarsman would sort of lay his head as he sort of directed and steered the boat from. And sometimes the back of the boat would have a, have a little bit of a covering over it. And over the covering is where they would sometimes place a stove because when they go out into the sea, they might be there for more than a day. So you, you're able to make some food, if not tea or something like that. So it's the back of the boat there. It's a 22-foot long boat and 7-foot wide. And so there is typically a leather pillow in the back on which the oarsman would lay his head. And that's where we find out that's where Jesus is in the back of the boat. And he lays his head. And he falls asleep. He's out. He's tired. It's a good little fact for us because Jesus is very much a human being. right? He's fully God, but he's fully man. So he fully gets tired. He's so tired that it doesn't matter how bad the storm is. You can just tell Jesus is just getting some good sleep. I mean, he's working all day. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's moving about. But his physical body is exhausted. But you know what? It's okay. These, these are sailors. These are seasoned sailors familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They got it. They got it covered. They know what they're doing. They'll take care of what needs to be. They're experts there. They've probably seen every kind of storm there is. You know, because if you're out in the waters and that's your profession, you know how to handle those kinds of challenges, which is why I think this story is that much more important because of how scared they get, which means there's something unique or even bigger about the circumstances that's important for us. Now, 
Something else that's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is that it's, it's a body of water that's about 630, 640 feet below sea level. The only other body of water that's that further lower than that is the Dead Sea. The reason that I say that is that when something is that far below sea level, what happens is that the air above it is often can be kind of rocky, tumultuous. So imagine it's warm air there, and on the eastern side is Mount Hermon, okay? Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high. And on the western side, you know, all the way down is, is the Mediterranean Sea. And often what happens is that the winds would come from either the mountains or from, from the Mediterranean Sea at such violent, rapid rate because this was so far below sea level. So when it comes down that aggressively, the, the air, I mean the air, I didn't mean water, air would come from either of those sides. The air up top is cold, okay? So picture that. The air that comes from the top is cold. The air on the bottom is warm. What, is, what do we know about cold air? It's denser, right? It's thicker. And so when cold air comes at that rapid rate, falling all the way thousands of feet down to, about, to where the sea level area is, it traps the warm air. And it begins to stir up the water because of the collision between the two. Warm air has no place to escape. One of the reasons that a city like Los Angeles struggles with smog is the same kind of phenomenon that it has there. It's a low-lying area, right? And when the winds come in from high up, what happens is it traps the air that's in there, the smoggy air, right? And it has no place to go because the air above it is too dense, it's too thick, so it's trapped it. It's actually referred to as an inversion layer. And so that's what we see here, that this is what, what, what's typically there. So storms on the Sea of Galilee is not unusual. It's actually known for some really violent, violent storms. But here, it tells us that the disciples, as they're experiencing this, are overwhelmed. They're afraid. Is it a natural storm? Or is there some sort of uh, attack by the enemy? Right? Mark records so many of these episodes of demonic attack. I don't know. Right? The text doesn't tell us that. Um, you know, but, but, but we see the forces of it. In the book of Matthew, it actually uses the word seismos. Seismos is the same word as seismic, which is like a shaking of the earth. So what they're saying is that the, the storm was coming in with such ferocity that it felt like the whole earth, the whole land, everything was shaking. And so if you could picture that scene, the, the, the boat is taking in water, the waves are crashing against it, and these disciples are feeling like it's just a matter of time before they capsize to their death. Now, they don't have the benefit that you and I do. They haven't read Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, right? So they don't know that there's a tomorrow coming. They think this is it, right? But Jesus knows, right? This boat is actually carrying very precious cargo, isn't it? The infant church is in this boat. The book of Acts is in this boat. Salvation to mankind Redemption for the whole world is in that boat. The bride of Jesus is in that boat. And Jesus is with them. And when the fishermen feel like they have nothing left, they go and wake Jesus up. 
I mean, it, I guess it's telling when sailors wake up a carpenter to help them out in a storm. You know, you're, you're, you're reaching now, right? But I actually don't think that they even were turning to Jesus for some sort of miracle or way out. I get the sense, this is just my own reading into it, I get the sense that they just wanted to wake Jesus up to say, we're going to die. We just want you to be awake to know this is it. <laughs> Before they're about to die. So, a few questions that I want to ask here. Why are they in the storm? Why are they in the storm? Is it because they disobeyed? No. Here's how I know. It's because there was no disobedience. It tells us in verse 35, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Whose idea was it to get into the boat? Whose plan was this? This is Jesus, right? They are in the storm because they're actually being obedient and following Jesus' instructions as he's asking them. They are. Now that is important for us because in life, there are storms of corrections, but there's also storms of instruction. Like the book of Jonah, right? Jonah was running away because Jesus had, I mean, God had called him to go and preach to the Ninevites, and he said, you're going to go the opposite direction. Very similar story, right? A storm comes, the sailors do everything they can. They can't seem to think that they're going to survive. There's a man on the bottom sleeping soundly despite the storm. They go and wake him up, right? But what we know about Jonah's story is very clearly because the story tells us that he was running away from the will of God and God used the storm to pull him back. Different, that was a storm of correction. The important point is this, that I think we can't look at what's going on in people's lives, in the storms that they're going through, in any way make presumptions, whether it's because of some sort of sin or wrongdoing, whether they are God is using it as a way to correct or rebuke. We simply can't. And it's important for us to be very, very careful of that stuff. We can't know. We can't judge. We don't have the information. We don't know the whole story, the big picture, to be able to make conclusions like that. You see, with these disciples, one day, one day, they will go through tribulation and persecution and martyrdom, right? I was looking at the stories of, of all these disciples that are in that boat, and it tells us in, in just, just anywhere, you can just Google it and look at it, but you can just see each of them died such a hard, violent situation. Simon, it tells us he was crucified, right, in Rome, upside down. Andrew, it tells us that they scourged him, and rather than nail him to a cross, they tied him so he could live a little bit longer. And for two days, he hung there dying, but all that time preaching to the passersby. You know, James, it tells us that he was executed, beheaded, beheaded along with his accuser simultaneously. Philip, Philip, it says that he traveled through Asia, and then when he was in the area of Egypt, he was thrown into prison and crucified. Bartholomew, they beat Bartholomew, 
And either it says they don't know whether they crucified him or some says that he was skinned alive and then beheaded. Thomas traveled through parts of Greece and parts of Asia and it says that they ran a spear through him and killed him. Matthew, going through parts of Ethiopia and traveling around, and it says that he was stabbed in the back by swordsmen. James, the lesser, he lived long till the age of 94. And then he was beaten and stoned, and then they killed him by hitting him over the head with a club. Thaddeus, there's a lot of different stories. He was in the area of Turkey and Greece, and then he was, he was killed there. Simon the Zealot, he was on the west coast of Africa, and then it says he went to the area of England, where he was finally crucified himself. And then you know, of course, about Judas Iscariot, who took his own life. You see, this storm in the Sea of Galilee that they're in will instruct these disciples that in those future storms, Jesus is with them. That Jesus is with them. That's what Jesus is instructing them. That's what is teaching them. This is why this moment is so important. Because they won't wonder, is it because of disobedience? Is it this? Is it that, Lord? No. Storms happen even in obedience. And I want you to know I'm with you. It says the disciples then awake Jesus. And you know the first thing they say. It's not something that I want to laugh at because I would say this too. Um, they woke him in verse 38 and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Don't you care? Whether I said it out loud or in my head, I cannot tell you the thousands of times I have felt, God, don't you care? Why this? And it can be the silliest little thing sometimes that gets us the most, right? We're rushing somewhere. We need to get there. We barely have enough time. And then something unexpected. It's like, wait, there's no gas in the car. Are you kidding me? No gas in the car or some kind of a flat tire. Or it just takes those small things. It's like, Lord, can't you just have uh, help me avoid that? Or big things, big things. We all have storms. We have maybe it's financial storms, emotional storms. Maybe it's marriage storms or, or parenting ones, health storms that we go through, relationship storms, work storms. And all those situations, I think, our, our inside is crying out. And that's why I love the psalm so much, because it's crying out with such honesty, Lord, where are you? Don't you care? Don't you care? What I love about the story is that Jesus is not bothered by the storm, but by the distressed cries of the disciples, he wakes up. That's what wakes him up. And in what seems anticlimactic, right? In the simplest of ways, he simply says here in this verse, and he woke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. That's it. Rebuke the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The word peace, be still actually can be translated be muzzled. Be muzzled, like the way you might talk to, a, to an animal, to a dog. Suddenly, immediately, a great calm. <laughs> what, a, 
what a shocking moment that must have been, right? Here they are doing everything they can, right? Uh, feverishly trying to, trying, to, trying to save their lives. And in an instant, the sea seems to be like glass. There's no wind, nothing there. Everything's calm. All they see is the words come out of Jesus' mouth. Peace, be still, be muzzled. And it's important for us just to, just to reflect on that. Because when we look at all of creation, right? Isn't it just the words of God that went forth? And the creation that we have, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, isn't that what it is? He spoke, right? Let there be light, right? Let the land separate from the, from the waters. And it tells us verse after verse in Genesis chapter 1, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. That's it. But it's so important for us to understand that that, who, who God is, it is his words that have power. With his words, he created all of that. None of this was ever too much for him. All the disciples can see is that they're drenched. Maybe the boat still has water in it. And the whole scene seems kind of a little ridiculous now because there's nothing, there's no crisis anymore. But it tells us something interesting that they're more terrified now than before. <laughs> you know? And Jesus asks them this question. Two questions actually asked them. And I want to explore that. Why are you afraid? And have you still no faith? Why are you afraid? And have you still no faith? Now, on the question of why are you afraid? You know, I mean, obvious thing anybody has to say is, what do you mean, why are we afraid? We were almost going to die. The sea was going to swallow us up. The boat was going to fall apart. Why wouldn't we be afraid? But I think what Jesus is asking them is, do you think this happens because I don't love you? Do you think this happens because somehow I've abandoned you? By that, I want you to know something. I do allow the people I love to go through storms. I do that. That's hard words for us, I know, but it does happen. So we have to ask this question. Here Jesus spoke and calmed and ended the crisis and took care of the problem. So this is the question that the whole world will ask, you know, and anybody who's sort of challenging Christianity will ask, well, if you could stop this fierce storm with just those few words, why didn't he do it all the time? Why doesn't he intervene and end the suffering and the violence and the horrors and the struggles and the, and the illnesses and the things that we're doing? Why doesn't this happen all the time? Or even ever, some of us would say in our lives, why doesn't God interrupt the course of events and actions on a more regular basis to help us? God, that's why, why don't you care makes so much sense. And I think the harder question for us to wrap our minds around is, how do we know what is truly the help we need? How do we know what we need? We think we do. Rabbi Zechariah tells a story. He's an apologist, and he tells a story sort of in a, in a humorous way. But he says, there's a man that um, owned a horse. One day, the horse ran away. So his neighbor came to him and said, oh, that's really bad luck, isn't it, for you, that your horse ran away? And the man says, what do I know about these things? A few days later, 
the horse came back, but along with the horse was 20 other wild stallions, wild horses, and they all come back into this man's land. And the neighbor comes and says, oh my gosh, what good luck that you have, that you have all these horses now. And the man says, what do I know about these things? Well, the man's son wanted to train these horses and, and domesticate them. So the, the son was working with one of the horses, the wild horses, and the horse kicked the man's son and broke the son's leg. So the neighbor came back and he saw this and he goes, oh, bad luck that your son's leg is broken. And the man goes, what do I know about these things? A few days later, there was a group of robbers and thugs that came through the area and they were recruiting young people to pull into their gang, as, 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 as soldiers into their gang. And as they were coming in, they were gathering the young men from there, but they saw this boy whose leg was broken, and they said, ah, he's useless. And they left him behind. And then the neighbor came to him and said, oh, what great luck you have. And the man said, what do I know about these things? Rafi Zechariah uses the story simply to say, which part of it was good and which part of it was bad, actually? We don't know. Was the horse running away a bad thing or a good thing? Well, bad, I guess, but, but just in one little course of events, right? Look at how we are actually not able to understand the big picture. Like our default is, assumption is to think what? Prosperity, success, comfort, a day without anything to do where we can just relax, and right? That's the measure of doing well. Things are going well. But do we really know? Do we really understand? The point is that I'm trying to make is that we don't. The way God calls us, we don't really understand. I look at the story of Abraham called on this adventure, and none of it made sense to Abraham in his life. He never actually got to the destination, never actually got to see the promise, right? It's hard to understand. Look at the story of the cross. What could be the greatest evil that's ever happened? The killing of God himself. Satan thought he won. What's the greatest good that's ever happened in the history of the world? The killing of God through which salvation came. Do we know what is good for us and what is not? Hard. There's another story that I find amusing, which was during the, the, the beginning of the communist uprising in, in, um, in, in China, the early 1900s, as, as, as the communist regime was taking power and General Mao, Mao Zedong, was, 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 was in power. One of the things that they wanted to do, being, being communist and part of their belief system was no belief in a god, right? It was an atheist uh, foundation. They wanted to get rid of all the Christians. And many were actually killed early on in the 1900s. But they, they said that the problem with these Christians are they, they just gather together wherever they are and they seem to like this gathering thing, right? So here's what we need to do. We need to make it impossible for them to gather together. So you know what General Mao did was he said, let's give these Christians the lowest job in their culture, which was to be a mail carrier and disperse them to all different parts of the country so they can't gather together again. Know it or not, General Mao started the largest missionary movement probably in China <laughs> because he sent Christians door to door to do what? Ring people's doorbell, go on their doors, and share about Christ. 
How do we know? Do we really know what's good? Can we really make sense of these things? The other question that Jesus says to them is, where is your faith, right? Do you still have no faith? And I think Jesus is teaching something here about faith that I think is really important. Jesus is teaching to them and to us the critical factor of faith is not the strength of the faith, but the object of the faith. Okay, and, and Tim Keller uses a story that's helpful for me, so I'm going to share that with you um, to understand this picture. Picture yourself on the edge of a cliff, okay? And you're on the edge of a cliff, and you're falling. You're, you're stumbling forward, and you're about to fall to your death, you know, down to the bottom, bottom, you know, all the way down the bottom of the cliff. As you're falling, all you see protruding out of the edge of the cliff is this branch, right? You don't know anything about the branch. You don't know how strong it is. You don't know anything about it. And just out of instinct and out of desperation, what do you do? You reach out and you grab the branch to hold on so that you don't fall all the way down. My question to you is this. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Think about it. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Does it matter? Does, it, does the branch go, oh, you came in kind of shaky, buddy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break. Or you're like, oh, you knew I was a good, strong branch. I'm going to make sure you don't fall. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not the level of your faith that saves you, right? It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's what you put your faith in. And that's why Jesus tells, when he preaches, he says, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed, almost so small you can't even see it. It's not the size of your faith, but who you have your faith in. Who you have your faith in. And sometimes out of the desperateness of the moment, all we do can do is just reach out and hold on. That's all. But that's sometimes... More than enough. That's more than enough. Afterwards, it tells us the disciples, it says they, in verse 41, at the end it says, and they were filled with great fear. Other versions says they were absolutely terrified. And they said to one another, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? That's a good question for all of us to ask. Right? Who is this? You see, when they were fighting the storm, they knew there was this untamable, unimaginable power of the sea and the winds that was going to destroy them right now. But here's what they realized all of a sudden, that in the boat with them is an even greater, untamable, unmanageable power. What? What manner of being is this? I mean, when we look at the world out there, we see the vastness of the sun, the planets, the stars, and it is beyond anything. You know, for anyone who's been on a ship or a boat out at sea and you just are in the middle of the ocean, you look out and you see nothing but ocean. And suddenly you realize the smallness of who we are, right? And you realize this vast creation. And to know 
that this person standing on the boat can, with his words, control it, tame it, direct it, rebuke it, muscle it, muzzle it. Right? That's what they realize. But here's what else Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say, look, you know, nature is being fierce and violent and aggressive. And maybe, maybe it was a way that Satan was trying to destroy this ship and this ministry and, and Jesus' life, right? Maybe it was. Maybe it was more than just a natural storm. But they didn't know what to make of that kind of power. But Jesus says, look, here's what you can make of my power. My power is for you. My power is good to you. I am with you, right? His power is unbounded. His love for us is untamable. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe having a ferocious, unmanageable, incomparable power on our side should give us the faith that we need, should take care of the fears that we have, right? There is no way Jesus is going to let us go. There is no way Jesus is going to abandon us or forget about us. We are going to have storms. We are going to have seasons. But is the hand of God ever going to let us go? No, not at all. Not only that, he will be ferocious for you and I. Whatever he needs to fight against an aggressive world that's trying to steal your heart, steal your mind, steal your love, he will fight back. The Bible tells us that we are his bride. What do you think he's doing for his bride? He is not going to let anything steal his bride away. That's the way the ferociousness is directed. And that's why I love how C.S. Lewis says it in his writings in the Chronicles of Narnia as he describes Aslan, right? He describes and goes, is he safe? <laughs> no. You know, Aslan is representative of Jesus. No, of course he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. And it's just good for us to remember that this incredible, powerful, almighty God who created this universe, who created you and I, who is above and beyond time, is for us. See, the hardest part about this, uh, our experience is this. It's hard to be inside of our own stories, right? It's like reading a book. And we are the character inside the book. So we actually struggle because the next page hasn't happened yet. We want to control the story. We want to know what's going on. But the truth is, we're not the author of our life. We didn't create us. We don't know the day we were born. We don't know how much we have, what our journeys will look like. I can look back over the last five years and not know who knew. Who knew any of this? We are in the story that God is writing about us. But what we need to remember is that this God is good. He is for us. He loves us. And if ever, ever, ever we struggle to remember that, look at the cross. And that's our reminder that he gave everything up, his only son, for you and I not to be separated. There is nothing that God would withhold 
from us because there's nothing he's, if he's already given to us as son, why do we wonder or doubt whether he'll withhold anything lesser? And that's the confidence that we have. So let's fix our eyes on him today. Amen? Amen. Let me just pray. <clears throat> Father, none of this takes away the fact that the storms are still scary. They're hard. And we're weak. And we struggle. And we're so glad you know it. And we're so glad you were with us. And you comfort us. And you love us. Give us the ability in the hardest of circumstances just to hold on to you. It's more than enough. Remind us of that, Lord. Remind us of that in every season of life, knowing that the only thing you desire for us is good and there is nothing you withhold. We do worry. We do feel like maybe you'll be stingy. Maybe we don't measure up. Maybe you don't like us as much. Maybe our failures are too much and it's gotten on your nerves. God, please remove these lies away from our mind and remind us of the truth of your love that's searched out through time and space and eternity to reclaim us back with you. Remind us of that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.